Hey, I'm Nikki. And I'm Emily. And welcome to That Six Letter Word, a podcast about being 20-something and living with that six-letter word that no one wants to hear, cancer. We are two friends that have lived and are living with this diagnosis, and we have some similarities and many differences. We dive into our experiences as young women, patients, friends, and survivors. Our hope is that this podcast resonates with any person going through any challenge, not just cancer. And we're here to remind you that we're all just people taking life one step at a time and spreading joy as often as we can. Hey, Nikki. Hey, Emily. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I am just living the dream, you know? Welcome back to That Six Letter Word. We're glad you all tuned in again. Yeah, this is episode two. Two, yes. My story. Yeah, Nikki. You're crazy, man. Oh, man. You're in the hot seat this week. How do you feel about it? I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm a little nervous, but, you know, I have some truths to share. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope it's worth something. And we'll set the stage for the rest of our conversations, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think where, it's where we're coming from. Yeah, I think it's good that like we're we're both telling our stories in the beginning and then it'll kind of open the doors to the rest of the topics that I know we'll cover in the future and guests we'll have on and yes. everything. So give the you background. Wanna go, yes, background. You wanna go ahead and get started? Should we just dive into it? Let's do it. Yeah, so, should we just head first in? <laughs> dive right in, man. So oh my gosh, where do I start? So I kind of already introduced myself. Hi, I'm Nikki. Welcome. Uh, (laughs) I am 25 and I am from the Detroit, Michigan area. I grew up right around here. Um, I've lived here my whole life. I went to college in Ann Arbor with Emily, where we met and became best pals. And I still live in the area working. So kind of the background, or I guess the start of my cancer journey, as we have so cheesily uh, come to call it, I was in Arizona hiking with friends, and I think that sets a pretty reasonable stage for where I was at in my life. I was 24. I was working full-time. I had just finished my master's degree. I am really active and have continued to be since college, uh, through college, really, and since college, and I was in Arizona with friends hiking the Grand Canyon. And on that trip, the day that we actually hiked the Grand Canyon, it was a Wednesday, my neck started to hurt during this hike and couldn't really figure it out. I thought maybe I'd slept wrong. You feel that kink in your neck. And then at some point during the day, my arm started to hurt too. It was a little bit swollen. We really couldn't figure out what was happening. And because I'm stubborn and I like to be active and I don't like to be wrong, I finished my trip with my friends. We hung out in our hot tub. We drank wine. We had the trip we wanted to have. And I flew home on Friday to Detroit. By the time Friday came, I was in a ton of pain. I had a really hard time sleeping on the plane. I got in my car at the airport. And when I was driving home, I couldn't even turn to check my blind spots um, because my neck was hurting so bad. So I ended up going straight from the airport to the ER. Now, mind you, I had other plans for this weekend. Uh, I was supposed to go straight from the airport to Ann Arbor with... Emily and the rest of our college roommates. We were supposed to have a party reunion. Weekend. 
it was the Michigan Michigan State game we were going to do a whole thing and so I figured maybe I had some sort of weird infection I would go to the ER on Friday night get it taken care of and make it to Ann Arbor for the game on Saturday obviously well we were all expecting because originally you were going to go to urgent care yes exactly and then we got a text and it was like oh nope go into the emergency room and I remember we were all at dinner and we were like oh my god wait what like what is happening yeah yeah and and that was like I was texting my cousin who was a doctor and I was asking him what I should be doing and I was like urgent care and he was like you know ER might be the right move and I was like oh you're so dramatic but like fine I'll get everything I need in one stop and then I'll you know get to Ann Arbor for the game so I went to the ER and something that sticks out to me is that like the first thing when I got there and again I was in like a ton of pain I couldn't really figure it out I'd been taking ibuprofen and nothing was working. And when I told the intake nurse why I was there, she was just like kind of giving me the up down. I was like, yeah, my arm's really swollen and it hurts a lot. And she was like, did you fall? And I was like, no, I'm not stupid. So it was a very awkward intake experience for me. Um, eventually they saw me, they you know, took all my vitals and everything looked okay. And they thought that I had a respiratory infection because I also had had a cough for about a week. And so kind of the first two things they did was they said, we're going to get you on fluids just to make sure. And then we're going to do a chest x-ray because it sounds like you have respiratory infection. Let's see if, you know, it's pneumonia, something worse. So they hooked me up to fluids, which took quite a few tries. That was when I called my parents. Originally, I was just going to stick it out in the ER by myself because I'm an adult. I can handle my shit. I'm 24. Um, after they tried the third IV is when I just broke down crying and called my mom and was like, I need you to come hold my hand. Um, and because mothers are the best, she did exactly that. She showed up, she held my hand while they got the IV going and they took a chest x-ray. And after that chest x-ray, they said, you have something called an opacity in your chest. And they didn't really explain what that meant. They just said something looked abnormal, but since I'd never had a chest x-ray before, they couldn't tell me if that was always there, if that was new, if that was a problem. They really couldn't tell. They just said it was an opacity, which means that it looked abnormal. There was kind of a space there that looked different from my normal tissue. And so they continued me on fluids, and then they did an ultrasound of that shoulder area and they found blood clots, which was wild. And then they did a CT scan. And a CT scan is something that kind of gives a, a blueprint, we'll say, of what's going on inside your body. And the CT scan showed a big, huge mass in my chest. And the way that the ER nurse described it, she walked into our room, my room. My mom and I were like spooning on the hospital bed because we couldn't fit otherwise. It was about three in the morning at this point. My dad had come and gone home to take a nap so my parents could take shifts. Uh, the ER nurse walked in and said, okay, you know, based on the CT scan, you have a mass that is eight by 10 by 10 centimeters. It's roughly the size of a softball. And she said, it's in your chest cavity and it's growing on your heart and on your lungs from what we can tell. It's, it's right on those organs or, or very near them. And you have these blood clots in your shoulder that are caused by this mass pressing on the veins, leaving your heart. And so obviously I perceived that as a death sentence. I was really scared when she told me that news. 
and we just cried. She said she would send in some different teams that I would need to see a cardiologist. We'd have to talk about maybe surgically removing those blood clots. And she said that we would talk to the hematology oncology team. So the blood cancer team. And that was really all we got. It was about three in the morning. Eventually she moved me to another room. I was obviously admitted. I was put on blood thinners immediately because these clots were very dangerous. Fortunately, they didn't have to surgically remove them, but they were dangerous. Um, they were cutting off, you know, parts of my, uh, my circulation. I was on blood thinners via an IV. Immediately, I was in the hospital. Uh, by Saturday, I had a PET scan, which is another scan that shows a little bit more about how active the tissue is. And I met my hematology oncology doctor. I met my reproductive doctor because I was told almost immediately that even though they weren't positive, they figured this was some type of cancer and that chemo was probably on the horizon for me. So I met that doctor. All of my doctors were really wonderful. I think they did a great job of reassuring me that this was not a death sentence, that from what they could tell, I was otherwise healthy, you know, things would be okay, there were treatments, but obviously it was horrifying. It was really scary. All of this was happening. And fortunately, my friends were nearby, and so everybody got to come visit on Sunday in the hospital, which was really fun. Uh, it was weirdly normal for what was happening, I think. We got the chance to just goof around and I think piss off my 98-year-old roommate, which was fine. And that kind of started the whole thing. So that weekend was, I mean, a, a total blur. Like I said, we went from the chest x-ray, the CT scan, the PET scan. By Monday, I had my first biopsy. And that was kind of what my doctors kept saying was they were pretty sure this was some type of lymphoma. They didn't know which type. They would need to do a biopsy to confirm it. And it was a needle biopsy, so it was kind of minimally invasive. And a normal needle biopsy, they take a few samples, you know, two, three, four. Um, and that's what they did my first, my first uh, biopsy. And it was inconclusive because the cells were growing so fast that they were also dying off so fast. So there are big parts of this mass that were just already dead scar tissue. And that was what they got in the first biopsy. Um, I got a second one about a week later. That was also inconclusive. I had to get a third one. The third one, they took 17 samples from two different parts of the mass. And that ultimately led to a diagnosis, which was primary mediastinal large B-cell lymphoma. So primary mediastinal is where in my body that mass is. Uh, large B-cells are, are the type of white blood cells that were cancerous. Um, were, sorry to interrupt. Were please. you at all frustrated having to go back for three separate biopsies? Yes. It was, it was horrible because it was like the not knowing, right? You go in and a biopsy, it's not, it's not a brain surgery. It's not a huge procedure, but you are put on drugs. It is a day. It's a full day in the hospital, right? Getting like a procedure. And so you do that and you leave and they're like, all right, three to five business days, we'll do everything. We'll call you. And then to be called and be told, actually, we didn't learn anything. And it's not that the cells are dead and you're fine. It's that we're pretty sure they're alive. We just didn't learn the right thing. We were really fortunate because one of my dad's best friends from high school, actually, like they were in each other's weddings. He is part of the surgery team at my hospital. And so I was able to get back in for my follow-up biopsies, I think more quickly than I probably would have. We really just lucked out there that we had the connection. And so we were able to kind of turn around quickly and get results, but it was just, yeah, it was shitty. You know, you wait around, it was three full weeks of just trying to get a diagnosis. And I think what's worth mentioning is during those three weeks is when I was also doing the egg freezing process. And so 
I got to the hospital that first Friday. I left the hospital the following, I want to say Tuesday or Wednesday. No, it was Tuesday. And Wednesday, the next day was my first appointment with my reproductive doctor. And so that was the first day that I started doing the injections to freeze my eggs. Um, Cause like I said, my doctor said, we don't know officially which type, but we know that it's going to be chemo. You should start this process as soon as possible. And, and kind of one of the phrases that sticks with me is my doctor said like, basically I'll give you three weeks. And she was like, I would like to start treatment in three weeks because this thing is big and it is dangerous. And if you can't freeze your eggs in three weeks, then you don't get to do it. And I'm sorry, which is why this all moved so quickly and kind of was happening at the same time. I was like literally doing my hormone injections and then the next day going for my biopsy, being put under a bunch of different drugs. So it was a lot at once, but I think that the egg freezing thing was a really healthy distraction while we were waiting for like a real diagnosis. So that was kind of the three weeks of chaos. And I'm sure there were so many other things that happened during that, but really it was every day taking my medications for, you know, my, my clots. It was blood thinners at this point, which were injections. It was my hormone injections for the uh, egg freezing. It was going to those appointments every other day to do blood work. It was going to the oncology office for blood work to figure out what was going on. It was going for the biopsies. Just a lot, a lot, very quickly. Once I got the full diagnosis, it was on a Friday. I started treatment on Monday, December 9th, 2019. And my chemo regimen was something called DAREPOC. Um, DA stands for dose adjusted. So they increase the dosage each time based on how your body's reacting. Uh, and then the REPOC are the drugs, basically. My regimen was five days of 24 seven infusions. So I know we'll probably get to this later, but really all chemo is very different. So when you hear someone say, oh, I'm going through chemo treatment, it could mean anything. There are pills, there are infusions. They could be a day, they could be five days, it's all over the board. Mine happened to be a five-day kind of continuous infusion. So that first Monday morning, my first stop was at the hospital to get a, a port put in, which is kind of like a subcutaneous catheter where they can access uh, your major veins to pump drugs in. Um, something that's really crazy that I know will probably upset some people is the fact that the chemo that I was getting is so toxic that it will give you third degree burns if it gets on your skin. And so when it goes in your veins, it has to go in the big veins or else it becomes dangerous because if it goes in your small arm veins, it won't dilute fast enough and it will basically burn you from the inside out, which is like absolutely insane. Um, oh God. Yeah, it's really crazy and like disturbing to think about. Um, so I had to get a port put in first thing in the morning that enabled them basically to access my major veins from kind of a little uh, thing on my chest. So that was kind of gross, but they did it. I started treatment that Monday. Uh, every round that I had was six days in the hospital. So I would go Monday morning to the hospital. They would start my meds. Usually by either late Friday night or early Saturday morning was when I got out. I stayed there the whole time because the drugs that I was taking required constant monitoring. They wanted to keep an eye on, it was mostly my kidneys, liver's a big one, and then just side effects, right? You can be really ill. Um, I was really fortunate not to be very ill for most of that time. I actually never had the nausea that is really common with chemo. I didn't have any major fatigue issues either. I walked every day in the hospital and between rounds at home. Uh, I had a side effect called neuropathy, which is where the 
nerves on the tips of your fingers and toes kind of go numb. And I had another side effect. Um, I don't know what the official name of it is, but these mouth sores basically um, that I got towards the end. So side effects were, I think, mild relative to what can happen, but still were pretty shitty. Uh, and I went through six rounds and every time they increased dosage, that first round was pretty lightweight. I didn't experience hardly any side effects. By rounds four, five, six, where I was getting the major dosages, that's where uh, side effects really started to kick in. Each of my rounds, like I said, was one week in the hospital and then I'd have two weeks off at home. During that time, I really didn't do much because they wipe out your immune system. And so if you catch a cough, you go back to the hospital. Uh, there's kind of no in between because you just have virtually no immune system. So I had a long winter of just kind of hanging out with my parents. And, you know, we did holidays light where we saw just a couple family members at a time. Uh, everything was cautious. Uh, which was necessary, um, but it definitely was isolating because I wasn't able to go to the holiday parties my friends were having. I obviously couldn't drink because of the meds that I was on. So even if my book club wanted to meet up, I had to drink water while they all drank wine. And like even eight people in a room was was a risk for me. Uh, I think I was really lucky that everyone in my life understood that. And so I feel really grateful that all of my friends made a really conscious effort to keep me safe. Like I think of, you know, my friend Colette who lives near here. She's like my best friend who lives around here. And like with our book club, she gave the whole club a talking to so that I didn't have to. And she explained to them what the story was. And as a result, anytime I went to book club, someone would text and say like, Hey, I, you know, it's Tuesday, but I had a cough last Friday. Like, I'm just going to sit this one out to make sure you're safe. I mean, people did a really good job kind of taking care of me, which I think it's just cool. It's really, Aww. yeah, it's really, like, I got special. goosebumps at that. <laughs> it's really special when people, you know, take that time and effort. And I think that that's something too, that anywhere in life, if you can make those little gestures to help people around you be safe, whether it's physical or emotional or whatever. Um, well, especially now in the time of the pandemic. Yes. Now it's like even crazier. I mean, now it's like, God, if you show up with a cough, I will kick you out of my home. But yeah, it's like, you know, I have terrible allergies and it's about to be the height of allergy season yeah. in Texas and I'm like if I sneeze out in public like people are gonna think I have COVID. People are looking at you for sure. Oh yeah. yeah it's such a weird time now but yeah I think it's so important to remember that like you can do those little things and help keep each other safe and I am really grateful that kind of my little group of people did that so that I could still do some normal stuff between treatments because you can't do all that you want to. You can't like go out and party and do what you really want to, but you know, to be able to have some, something going on helps me a lot mentally. So I went through these six rounds of treatment. I finished on April 4th, 2020, my best friend Kendall's birthday actually. And that was right when the pandemic started to rage. And so I have not done much since then to speak of. We're all kind of locked at home and that's kind of most of the story there as far as the cancer stuff goes. Some other kind of key points, I shaved my head the day before chemo started because I knew that I didn't want to watch my long blonde hair fall out in big giant chunks. And so I shaved my head, which was a crazy experience. Uh, kind of freeing, kind of cool. Wouldn't recommend it as like a, you know, fun Saturday, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but wasn't the worst thing. My hairdresser did a really awesome job of kind of keeping me comfortable and, you know, it was it was an experience. Um, I did that the Saturday before treatment started. 
Well, just know if you ever uh, want to shave your head again, you can definitely pull it off because oh, it looks incredible oh. without, like, I was it showing everybody, I was loop. like, look at my friend. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, I do not have the facial structure to pull that off. It was so scary because that's what you were saying. I was going into it and I was like, guys, what if it looks terrible? I kept saying to my mom, like, you'll tell me, right? Like, you'll, you'll tell me if it's really, really bad. And she was like, yeah, probably. And then I was I, like, we finished and I was like, wow, this is not tragic. Wow. I'm not going to keep that look forever, obviously, but it wasn't tragic, which was really lucky. Um, what else? I had a boyfriend when I went into treatment. Um, I broke up with him. I, you know what? Yeah, I broke up with him like six days after I got diagnosed. I'm trying to remember what the timeline was. No, I broke up with him during my first round. So it must have been about three and a half weeks after the original diagnosis. It was like the first or second day of my first round. We'll get into that whole conversation, I think, probably in another episode. Um, but it was a long time coming. It wasn't entirely prompted by that, but definitely uh, a decision that was sped along by kind of the circumstances. My grandpa, who had been sick for a long time, honestly, um, he went into hospice care and died on New Year's when I was also in the hospital getting treatment. Um, Emily was in town and Emily and our friend Haley came and visited me on New Year's and like, I had the best hospital New Year's that probably anyone can have. I got to see my friends and my family. My parents came and ate Thai food. It was just like a, a, a relaxing night. We drank fake champagne and stuff. Um, and then in the morning, I found out my grandpa had passed away overnight. And I did get to say goodbye to him on Christmas, which I think was really good for both my brother and I. We were really close to him. Uh, it was just like him to go out on New Year's. None of us knew if his death certificate said 2019 or 2020 until like weeks later. Uh, that was just, I think, his kind of tip of the hat to us. And so that was just a crazy time for my whole family because it was just a month of nonstop, right? Like we went from my original get, going to the hospital right before Thanksgiving. We had Thanksgiving without even a real diagnosis. I remember going to the doctor on the morning of Thanksgiving, started treatment in December, had Christmas, said goodbye to my grandpa had New Year's when he passed away. My brother had to fly back into town for his funeral the following week. My first time ever wearing the wig that I had bought was to his funeral so I could speak at the funeral. Like it was just crazy, like two months for our family. After that, kind of the January, February, March passed very slowly. At that point, it was just a lot of like reading books, doing puzzles. I learned to knit. We were just hanging out. We were just making it from one treatment to the other. And I think the biggest thing that I can share about that time is that when you're going between these treatments, it's for me, at least it was really easy to be positive because it was just show up to the appointment, wake up the next day, get the thing done. You know, my parents were around to motivate me to like walk, to eat healthy, to do things. Um, and so that time it was isolating emotionally because my friends were all busy, like living their lives and I wasn't. But I was supported and there was just kind of a goal. And I kept telling myself like, all right, you get to the next treatment, you get to the end of treatment. There are goals and things will be okay. Um, after treatment ended was really when I had a hard time. And I think when I'm still having a hard time and obviously the pandemic plays a huge part in this because rather than finishing treatment and getting to like go back to life with my friends, I finished treatment and then had to go on further lockdown for a much longer time. So Everyone else has been quarantining since March of 2020 by now. I had been quarantining since November of 2019. I kind of had an extra like six month running start on, on isolation basically. 
So after treatment was really when that started to hit, when the when COVID was happening, I couldn't see any of my friends. It was really the heat of COVID where like we couldn't even go to outdoor restaurants. We couldn't even see friends in parks. We were fully locked in our house. Um, I was with my parents, fortunately, so I was entertained. But it was a really hard time of just trying to, I think, balance the fact that like, A, I just went through all this crazy shit and I want to talk about it, but I can't see my friends. Um, B, I ended a relationship. And so now all of a sudden I'm quote unquote well enough to go date again and I'm not allowed to. So that's really hard. And just trying to continue those relationships after having experienced all this, right? Just relating to people after having gone through something that most people haven't gone through was really challenging for me where like people would call and want to talk about like their boyfriends or this or that. And on the one hand, I really want to be normal and talk about it. But on the other hand, I'm like, dude, I don't care. I just experienced all this insane shit. Like, I don't even want to talk about your boyfriend. I don't care, you know? So it was a very weird time for me, I think, to kind of balance those things. Um, and like I said, it kind of continues to be true, right? Like now we're in God knows what month of quarantine and things have lightened up in different ways. And we've, you know, learned to connect to via Zoom and things like that. But that's been, I think, for me, the biggest, I would argue one of the biggest challenges of this whole experience is just reconciling that part of my life, right? What I've been through with who I was before and who I still am. Um, Cause I'm still that person, but now it's like, oh, I had this ex insane experience to talk about, but I'm still like a 25 year old. And most 25 year olds don't want to like go on dates and talk about cancer, right? So that has been crazy, I guess, for me. Um, that's been kind of the, the major, I guess, overarching life thing during this experience for me. Yeah, and what I think is like important to touch on right there is people always think that going through chemo was the hardest part. And exactly what you said, it's kind of like you had your set goals that you could get up every day. You knew exactly what you needed to do to get your body well. And now that you're done with all of that, it's kind of like, okay, like we'll see you back at like whatever frequency your PET scans are. Good luck, essentially. Yeah, that's, and, and it's so funny. And like, I know we joke because we'll send like cancer memes back and forth, but it's like, all the memes. Honestly, there's there's some good cancer content on Instagram. Everyone should go find me. <laughs> um, but it, it's exactly that, where it's like this idea that, okay, now like you're physically fixed. We will see you in six months. And that is something to be excited about. And of course you want to celebrate that. But then at the same time, you're like, you feel like you're being pushed off a cliff where you're like, wait, but I haven't had a social life. Like this is my, like for me, half of my social interactions were hanging out with the nurses at the oncology office because I got to know them and I was there all the time. So now all of a sudden it's like, oh wait, who do I talk to about what's going on? You know, and again, I do want to give credit to a lot of our close friends because people, people reach out and people care and they want to talk about it. But there comes a point where they can't really understand what you're going through. And so it's just a very weird kind of, like I said, cliff to be thrown off of where all of a sudden you're like, back in the real world, you've kind of emerged from your cave of being gone for six months, but you're different from when you left and the world is different from when you left. And so trying to kind of reconcile those relationships was, like I said, for me, the hardest part. Um, and I know that's not everyone's experience. Some people, you know, the chemo is the physically hardest thing that will ever happen to them. And I'm sure there are cells in my body that are disagreeing with what I'm saying because they fought really hard. But fortunately, I didn't feel really unwell for a lot of it. So it 
it just felt like something I had to show up and do. And then it's the after of like, okay, now I look different, right? My hair is gone. It's growing back chaotically, but you know, now I look different. I have these different experiences. You know, how do I talk about them? How do I process them myself? And doing all of that from your apartment during a pandemic is just a weird twist, I think, to put on all of it. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. Did, did you ever consider going to see a therapist or going to any group therapies or anything? Because, like, obviously, you are not the first person to have gone through all yeah. of the emotions that you're feeling right now. Yeah. And it's funny. I, like, meant to talk to you about this before we even started recording, but I guess we'll do it live. Um, <laughs> we'll do it live. I, yeah. I So, uh, kind of right after treatment, I sought out a therapist and I guess in defense of therapy, I didn't look very hard. I found one person and I met with her twice and I just didn't really vibe with it. It felt a little bit like, I, I think that I know myself well enough. And I think that my brain works in a way where like, I don't need coping mechanism tools. I think that I'm relatively healthy with coping with my stuff and I can kind of intellectually understand what's happening to me. So I don't, I don't like when people are like, all right, so talk to the inner child in you and this and that. Like I, I, that being, and it's not being talked down to, I think for a lot of people that's really productive, but to me, that's what it feels like. And so that was kind of the dynamic and I hated it and didn't go back to her. And I, I kind of Googled some groups, but didn't find one revolving around young people. Uh, and I think a big part of this challenge is because of COVID, there's nothing meeting in person. So there are a few probably support groups that mm -hmm. I could have like zoomed into, but it felt weird to me. So I didn't. Um, where I landed today was I was really, I was having a day today. I was walking around my neighborhood after work and I was like thinking like, oh my God, I need to find a therapist. Like I need to find someone to vent to. Cause I think I'm at this point where I feel very stuck because now I've been home for so long that I feel very stuck in like some of my habits and some of my relationships. And now is when I'm like, okay, I just need to find the right therapist. Like I recognize that it's kind of like dating. You need to find the right type of person. And really I just need someone to like, listen to me vent, I think. Cause I don't, I don't really want someone to like explain to me how to process certain things. I'm sure yeah, that's that. what will happen. But like, it, you know, like, I just want someone to listen to me and be like, yeah, shit's hard. And I'll be like, yes, thank you. You know? Yeah. 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 Uh, um, so I kind of came to that resolve today that I would find a therapist. Um, so stay tuned. I, I haven't yet, but it is on my list of things to do this week because I think it'd be really helpful. And like I think, like I said, I think especially with COVID, it's just like all of my old habits and ways of doing things kind of don't exist right now. And I think that's why it's not super healthy for me because I'm just in like a weird hamster wheel of new habits that aren't great. I mean, nothing crazy is happening. I just like I don't like working out anymore. And it's because I'm really out of shape. So it's hard to get back into it, but I'm trying to figure out how to kind of break some of these cycles and, and, you know, get better about some of these habits. Um, yeah. This would be a really good spot that if we actually were sponsored, we could be like, but go into Talkspace. Like, Talkspace has. Oh my God. Shout out Talkspace. Oh my gosh. Uh, please sponsor it. No. <laughs> Coming we're soon. Looking. No. Oh my gosh. Um, my roommate well, keeps joking about that. I'm like, when are you going to find sponsors? I'm like, dude, it's early. Um, not to like backtrack or anything, but when you were in 
the Grand Canyon, like hiking and everything, were people not freaking out about how big your arm was getting? You know, it's so funny because now we talk about this and like, it's crazy some of the signs. So uh, the other sign that I totally failed to mention, on Wednesday, as we're hiking the Grand Canyon, my neck's hurting and I'm like kind of whining about it, but you know me, like I'm not someone who's going to dwell on it. I'm going to like tell you once that my neck hurts and then probably not bring it up again, even if it's causing me a lot of pain throughout the day because I don't like to, you know, wreak havoc on a fun outdoor weekend. So no one knew much was going on, but when we were on the second half of our hike, mind you, the Grand Canyon, you have to hike down into the canyon and then up and out. So that second half is like straight uphill, shit show for like six miles. A couple miles into that uphill, I stopped on the trail and I was like, guys, um, hang on, I don't feel well. Turned around, threw up all over the trail at the Grand Canyon. And like before oh I was even God. done throwing up, the guys like grabbed my backpack, like everyone, and, and, and I give them so much credit because they didn't know that anything was wrong. They just knew that I didn't feel well. And they like took my backpack, made me the leader of our little pack and said like, we're going at your pace. We stop when you want to stop. Like they did a really great job of not making me feel weird about it. Cause I think that could have been very awkward, like just embarrassing, right? No one likes throwing up in front of like guys and girls who are their friends. So that I think was the first sign where everyone's like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just like, you know, I ate something weird for lunch. I was just very, I brushed it off again, which is kind of, it's like me to do. By Thursday, when my arm started getting swollen, everybody in our group was like, Nikki, like, should we, do you want to go to urgent care? And I was like, I'll text my cousin who's a doctor. Like everyone calm down. And again, I think a lot of this has to do with like who I am as a person where I kind of was just like, it's fine. I probably got a spider bite. Like nothing's wrong. And I'm texting my cousin who's a doctor and he's like, yeah, no, you, you definitely should go to the ER. And I was like, Rob, I'm definitely on vacation. Like I'll go when I get home, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And he was right. I definitely had to go to the ER. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think our group, I think that they were following my lead and because of the way that I am, I was downplaying it a lot, which again, I do want to make it clear that when you're 24 and like your arm hurts and your neck hurts, your first thought isn't like, wow, there's probably a softball sized tumor in my chest. Right. And and I've had people ask me that question. They're like, well, how did you not know? Like, and I'm like, who jumps to that conclusion? You just assume that you know, you got a weird bite or there's some sort of weird infection. I had had the respiratory infection. So I thought maybe something was wrong there. Like it's a really weird conclusion to jump to. And now I feel a single pang of pain and I'm like, oh my God, it's back. Like now I'm of course a little bit psycho about it. But yeah, at the time, I, you know, who guesses that? Um, WebMD would. You Googled your symptoms. Like it literally always points to like cancer or some fatal. You know what's funny is I think I made that joke like one time on that trip because Trink and I, our good friend Trink, who maybe we'll have on, Trink and I were sharing a bed on this trip, and at some point I said to Trink, like, Trink, like, do you think it's some sort of weird cancer or something? Like, why is it my whole arm and my neck and this cough? She was like, Nikki, please, like, relax. And I was like, Yeah, you're right. That's crazy fast forward 48 hours <laughs> literally I'm like hey Trank I have cancer uh like <laughs> oh my gosh so yeah it's weird I mean I think that everyone everyone was concerned but I think they followed my lead and I downplayed it and I guess it was what it was um I don't know it was very weird I I do I don't know I I am a proponent now of when you feel something's off you probably know that something's off And that's not to say that 
you'll always know because clearly I didn't know what was wrong but it was obvious something was off and so like when that nurse when I first walked in and that intake nurse kind of gave me an up down and was like are you sure you need to be here it's important to advocate for yourself and you know your body is better than anyone else and so when you know something's wrong when you feel something's off don't let people you know judge you away from getting help because I think that I could have probably turned around and been like oh yeah I'll just go to urgent care like sorry you're right you know I was a little bit nervous because that nurse was so standoffish. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, we've talked about this. It's so important to just advocate for yourself. And you know, when something's going on, you don't always know right away, but listening to your body, I think is really important. And I'm sure everyone hears that, that, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, well, granted mine wasn't like that. I just thought I had migraines and needed yeah. medication and everything but now every time I get like a migraine or a mild headache I'm like my tumor's growing back <laughs> this is it and then I like go in for my like appointments and they're like nope you're still good <laughs> <laughs> that I swear I've had like I was talking to my cousin I've had so many weird things these past couple weeks where I'm like yeah I had about uh 30 seconds of pain in my armpit like definitely cancer's back it spread to my lymph nodes I'm gonna die like I just it, I spiral that's oh yeah I mean the same like thing if I close my eyes and think about it, it's like, I can almost feel like the tumor cells in my brain, like being like, oh, today's the day. Yeah. We're going to multiply. <laughs> they're like, they're like those, um, oh my God, what's that movie where it's like the little guys in the head, um, the little emotions. Oh, um, in, <sighs> Inside Out? Yeah, Inside Out. Yeah. There's like at a desk, like, do, 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 You're like, dude. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what I feel like. It's insane. Um, so yeah, it's a wild ride. And as the update, I guess, I was cancer-free technically um, three months out. I actually had to get a biopsy at the three-month mark. This is just an interesting phenomenon. I'll do a quick one minute about what it was. Yeah, but run us through this. Yeah, this one was crazy. So I got a PET scan right after treatment ended and everything looked great. My mass had shrunk a lot. Some of it was still there because some of it that had lived and died before treatment even started just stays as scar tissue. But it was gone. It was inactive. Things were looking good. I had my three-month scan, and at the three-month mark, there were kind of two spots that showed up, and one was the original mass. So it was kind of assumed, like, hey, it's still kind of dying off. It's still melting away. Like, that scar tissue was healing. That wasn't a huge concern, but there was another mass up in my neck area, and they ended up biopsying it. And what it ended up being, this is just a crazy phenomenon, something called thymic rebound. So everyone has this gland, it's called the thymus. Everyone's born with one. It's really active when you're young and it trains your immune system. So it's like the gland that trains your white blood cells. And when you're little, it's really active. And between the ages of 20 and 30, it like dies off, shrivels up, turns into scar tissue basically. So it's still there, but it's not operating. And like I said, between 20 and 30. And there's this phenomenon called thymic rebound that happens in people who have had chemo. I think it's specifically when you've had, I don't know if it's blood cancer chemo or it's all chemo, honestly, because basically all chemo kills out your, your immune system. But either way, your thymus, which has started to go to sleep after chemo, will basically wake up from the dead in order to retrain your immune system that has now been rebuilding from the ground up. So it's this weird phenomenon where it looks active. It looks like it could be cancerous because it's active tissue that where you don't expect to see it, where you hadn't previously seen it because your thymus was on its way out the door. 
but it wakes up from the dead to help your body recover. And that was kind of what they discovered. So at my three month pet, got the scan, saw this mass, everyone freaked out, got a needle biopsy, not a fun one. And after they said, yeah, it's, um, it's thymic tissue. It's not lymphoma tissue. You're safe. It's just this gland kind of waking up and, and helping your body retrain itself. So it's this weird phenomenon. Um, Have they never seen that before? Because that sounds like a pretty, if for however many young adults go through chemo and treatment and everything, you'd think that'd be a pretty common indicator that the thymus gland is now reactivating. Yeah, it's weird because it's definitely like, it's not uncommon, right? If you Google thymic rebound, like there are papers about what it is. And when they first saw that mass, my doctor kind of said like either cancer is back or it's this thing called thymic rebound. But I think my doctor is very like pragmatic. She doesn't want to get our hopes up. She's very low key. She's not like overly optimistic, which I do appreciate about her because she never has to tell us bad news and we're expecting good news. It's always kind of the opposite, right? Um, So she did say like, maybe it's an option, but we're still going to biopsy it. And when I Googled it, what's weird about it is that like, it's not well understood. So it's not that it's uncommon, but I think that aside from like the layman term version that I just gave, like not that much more is known about it. Um, And I think it happens more in women, which is interesting. I don't really know beyond that, honestly. We should ask one of our doctors. I'll ask my doctor. I see her on Wednesday. But yeah, I guess the other update then is that I had my six-month PET scan this morning when we're recording this, and I will find out uh, later this week what the update is. So maybe I'll throw in a little snippet before the episode, but if not, we will keep you posted, I guess. Hopefully, we're still good. Yes, hopefully. And like, uh, what what cadence is your appointment schedule now and like what would it look like if you're cancer free for however long yeah so it the way that it was described to me basically we will increase the length between pet scans it's somewhere around four or five years of clean scans that my doctor wants before she totally cuts me loose and doesn't see me again but those four to five years it starts out with like three months. So I had a three month scan and then this scan that I got this week was three months from the last. If this one looks good, I think it extends to four to six months. If that one looks good, it might be more like six to eight. If that looks good, it'll be eight to 12. So the idea is to kind of increase the interval between scans, but it's highly dependent on how they look. So this last one, because it scared us, she wanted us three months right away. If this one looks totally good and everything appears to be going well, then it'll be about six months and then probably another one, eight to 12 months after that one. So we'll see what she says. Like I said, I'm seeing her this week, so I might have more info kind of later, but that's kind of, that was the plan when we last talked. So, you know, barring anything crazy, that's what it'll look like, but it'll be about four or five years, I think, before I'm really like in the clear, don't have to go in anymore. Well, we're hoping for that. Thank you. Oh my God, me too. Yeah. And then the last question I have is, Is there a chance that this will come back at any point in your lifetime or will, or is it kind of just like a one and done thing? It's everything that we've read, been told, heard, whatever, has been that it's basically the one and and done. And the reason that I have this kind of four or five year mark is because if it's going to come back, it's going to come back within five years. Um, The rate of recurrence after five years is like almost zero. Um, 
Now there are like other cancers that can be caused by the chemo that I got. So there's always kind of weird risks, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. anything. Um, but in theory, it's like, if it doesn't come back in five years, you're more or less safe. And, and basically with every year it goes down. So if I make it a full year, the odds get lower. That's kind of the, the idea is that it will recur quickly. So I don't really know much about the odds beyond that. I feel like I don't ask these questions that specifically to my doctor. My mom probably has notes written down somewhere that I just didn't really listen to. But I tend to kind of just like take the information and not always ask that many questions. I think certain details I just don't want to know, which sounds bad. I know some people are different. Uh, But that's kind of as much as I know about it. That's kind of the, the three sentences that I've been told. Yeah, no, well, like I said, rooting for you. Woo, yeah. Woo. So. so that's, that's most of it. I don't know. What else did I miss? We'll get into everything else, I think. Yeah. Those yeah, are the who's, yeah, yeah. what's, when's, where's, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, thank you for sharing with us. And I feel like I learned a lot on this because, I mean, I know, I know your story, but I feel like whenever we talk about it, I learn something new. Yeah. I feel like I take a new direction every time I tell it, which is probably good. This is cathartic mm-hmm. to get to retell it a few times over. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that's it. So I hope everyone enjoyed. I don't know if enjoyed is the right word. I hope you learned something about me and about life. And yeah. uh, we have tons more to talk about. So I hope that sets the stage. And you heard Emily's story last week. So you'll, you'll kind of get the framework for where we're coming from. Yeah. Well, any last remarks, Nikki, before we close? Just, uh, you know, get out there, get weird, be (laughs) kind. Spread joy. Spread joy. Fuck shit up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, thank you for listening to that six-letter word podcast. And thank you, Nikki, for telling your story. And I hope you tune in next week to hear our next episode. We will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. This is Nikki. Just wanted to pop in and provide a short update on my health. Since when we recorded this episode, we weren't sure what the outcome of my latest scan was. Uh, I got my six-month PET scan, and everything came out clear. So I am still cancer-free. I'm actually getting my port taken out pretty soon here and uh, looking forward to sharing more with you guys in the future. Thanks for checking in and we'll talk to you next time. This podcast is recorded and edited by Nikki Steltenkamp and Emily Sweet using GarageBand and released using Simplecast. Our song is Wildcard from GarageBand and our cover art is by Jazz Parker. We'll talk to you next time.